Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, critics are slamming Doug Ford's plan to replace nuclear power with natural gas here in Ontario. Are they not concerned about climate change? Port delays, storage issues, rail capacity, and a trucker shortage have all played a part in the strain that's on our supply chain these days. Is there light at the end of the tunnel, or are consumers going to continue to pay a price? And Dove Canada takes a shot at Bell Media's ouster of Lisa Laflamme. Joanne McNeese, Associate Professor of Marketing with Toronto's Metropolitan University, will join us to discuss that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to talk about energy and uh, Ontario's plan for energy. And uh, surprisingly, as a matter of fact, Ontario's plan for energy uh, is is not going to include nuclear power, at least not to the extent that some people suggest. Uh, Ontario's plan to uh, replace electricity generation with an aging nuclear plant that closes in 2025 uh, is 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 well shocking to an awful lot of people because they say, you know, we're going to rely on natural gas, not nuclear power. And it's, it's got a lot of, uh, of, of people shaking their heads and saying, what's going on with you? It's like 19th century thinking to try to resolve the problem. I want to bring uh, our next guest in, uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer, is the president of the Canadians for Nuclear Energy, uh, and get his perspective on this. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Great to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this, because we we mentioned a few weeks ago, before the the province outlined what they were going to do here, that, you know, we've we've got a problem, of course, with supply, and we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing going forward. And and nuclear power seems to be the most logical solution. Uh, were, you, were you surprised by the announcement here that basically they're, they're going to let these basically mothball uh, the plant and basically just go with natural gas? Well, you know, sadly, I'm I'm not surprised. Um, we've known about this for some time now. The independent systems operator has been crystal clear that Pickering's massive output is going to be replaced uh, by natural gas. You know, just to give your your listeners a sense of what we're losing um, with Pickering going offline, it's the equivalent of all of our hydroelectricity capacity from Niagara Falls. So this is just a massive gaping hole that's going to be appearing in our grid. And the reason it's happening is really a, a failure of vision going back, I would say, several decades now. Um, you know, we're refurbishing um, all of our other nuclear reactors at Darlington and Bruce, which is a good thing. It's locking in this ultra-low carbon power uh, until the 2060s. Um, and we have to remember, Ontario has really achieved the holy grail of a deeply decarbonized grid. We're climate leaders, and we've done that with nuclear. We have about 65% of our electricity coming from nuclear, and that's what has gained us this enviable position, and we're about to lose it. We're going backwards uh, by burning natural gas, as you were mentioning. It, it just it's, it boggles the imagination to think that they'd actually look at something like this. So, you know, Pickering is going to go offline. This, this is their plan uh, for in 2024 and be shut down, closing totally by 2025 right now. Uh, and, and they're suggesting that they want some stability with the system, and you know, because that's going to attract investment in new businesses, and which kind of makes sense. I, I can understand that, and that's, that's a laudable goal. But the, as you just mentioned, though, Chris, they're, they're putting a big hole in the system here, and we're running the risk now of going back to the days of brownouts or blackouts, and, and I don't think anybody wants to go back there. No, absolutely. Um, you know, and that, that is a real possibility. Um, you know, Ontario's a great place for businesses to come that want to use low-carbon electricity. You know, that's all the rage with, with ESG and other things like that. Um, and we've been an excellent location for that. Um, but as we lose so much of the gains we made by phasing out coal, by pivoting back to natural gas, um, it's, it's really losing its luster that way. Um, and, and we're just going to be facing capacity shortfalls no matter what. There's recent rumblings from the ISO 
um, that basically as soon as we shut off Pickering, we're into a risky situation. And we're in a scramble now. And really the fastest way to bring on new generation is to build natural gas plants. Um, that's a real shame because with a little bit of vision, um, I think we can get around this. You know, our organization put out a report recently outlining a plan to life extend and refurbish the Pickering Nuclear Station as we're doing at Darlington and Bruce. And we really think that is the best way forward. People talk about, you know, Pickering as being an, an aging nuclear power plant. The thing about our candy reactors is that they have the potential for a midlife refurbishment. And again, we're doing that at Darlington and Bruce. After 30 or 40 years of operation, we can swap out the main components and get another 30 to 40 years out of these nuclear stations. And that really is the best bang for our buck. Um, it supports local industry. You know, we have a 96% made in Ontario supply chain with nuclear. So every dollar that we invest in this technology, we get a dollar forty back. And that's, that's just you know, in addition to the climate benefits and the clean air benefits we get from nuclear. Um, so there absolutely is a better way. Um, and, you know, we really have to hold the line here and, and not take a step backwards um, on, on our emissions and on our, our climate responsibilities. You know, the, the most elementary question, I guess, to ask here that I don't think the government's given us a straight answer on here is, is they, they clearly see that nuclear is, is part of the solution here, as you mentioned, with Darlington and Bruce. Then why not Pickering? I mean, why all of a sudden are they saying, okay, no, we're going to shut that one down? It just, just it, yeah, it's going to cost money to refurbish it, but it costs money to do anything these days. We get that, but it doesn't make sense to take a big piece of of the of the future and the commitment that we've made to nuclear and simply say, no, we don't need three. We're just going to use use two. That there's going to be a hole here. We know that, and they must understand that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Bill. I mean, part of the problem is um, is that we didn't think we were going to be having increased demand on our grid because we weren't anticipating electrification. You know, um, we also were thinking that hey, gas isn't so bad. You know, as far back as 2012, um, some of our main environmental agencies uh, and, and nonprofits like the Ontario Clean Air Alliance were taking a good chunk of their funding from the natural gas industry. Natural gas was cool; it was better than coal back then. Thank mm-hmm. God we didn't listen to their advice and we used nuclear to replace coal. We used uh, nuclear for 90% of the energy we needed to get coal off our grid. If we'd listened to the environmentalists, we'd be burning more natural gas right now. You know, there's this fantasy, and, and you know, Doug Ford is being blamed a lot for canceling some of these Green Energy Act um, contracts for wind and solar and saying, hey, it's because you didn't um, allow more wind and solar to be built um, that we're going to be facing the shortfalls. And that's just absolutely not true. Because you can't replace nuclear, which is on 90% of the time. You know, it's essentially reliable, always on power. You can't replace that with something like wind and solar, which is at the whims of the weather. Um, so, you know, we're in a tough place, Bill. Um, you know, tough places call for, for dramatic actions. Um, and again, that's why we are calling for the refurbishment of the Pickering Nuclear Station. We have a, a long report, um, detailed policy report, uh, out there at uh, c4ne.ca if, if your listeners are interested in looking at that. You made an interesting point here, which is, I guess, at the at the root of, of the decision here, is that uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the grid in, in the in the future. And we knew that. We haven't, you know, we've discussed it, but I haven't heard the government talk a whole lot about this right now. Their commitment to EVs uh, over the next couple of years is actually going to put an awful lot of pressure on the system, uh, which, and, and I get that. And I think that's got to be a concern. I think a lot of people were worried about that when these commitments are being made. But by the same token, that doesn't mean we have to tear down the system that we have right now, does it? Well, you know, it's, it's relatively easy to make battery electric vehicles. And transportation is about 25% of our emissions. You know, it's, we, we need to be making a transition in that direction. But if you don't have the juice to charge those vehicles, then you're going to have a lot of really upset commuters. 
um, and you're not going to have solved the problem. You know, we're seeing in places like California who are shutting down nuclear um, and relying increasingly on wind and solar um, that they're actually having such a strained grid that they have to put out warnings to California residents, hey, please don't charge your EV today uh, because we're facing brownouts and blackouts. You know, I don't think Ontarians want to be in that decision, and they don't need to be if we make the right choice and if we continue to support nuclear energy, which has, again, really been the backbone um, of the success that we've had here, both economically and, again, on, on a climate perspective. We've done what we need to do. Um, we need to continue to build out a very clean electricity grid. We need to refurbish Pickering. We need to build new, large nuclear. Um, and that's really the way we've seen around the world. If you don't have endless hydroelectricity, the only large economies in the world that have mm-hmm. achieved deep decarbonization of their electricity have done so with nuclear. Who wins out of this? I mean, you know, if we're going to do this, and that seems to be the intention of the provincial government at this stage, environmentalists are concerned about this. Uh, people in the industries are concerned about this, about the the the, the possibility of, of, as you say, having interruptions in service again. And 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 uh, you know, I, we all still remember the the blackouts, the brownouts, and and some of the horrific things that we had to go through. And and we relied on nuclear power uh, to get us out of that mess right now. And it just seems incongruous that they just simply say, yeah, we're going to be fine with this, even though there's going to be increased pressure on this. Uh, obviously, people in the natural gas industry, I guess, are excited about this, but I don't see anybody else that's jumping up and down. Oh, I mean, absolutely. The natural gas industry stands to gain here, but that that industry isn't in Ontario. We're going to be largely getting that gas from Western Canada and even more so from the fracked natural gas fields um, in, in America and the USA. You know, and and natural gas is getting pricey. We're seeing prices now that are higher than before the fracking revolution. They've gone up five times in the last two years. It's five times more expensive for that natural gas. And so even though the Pickering refurbishment is going to cost some money, we think that it's going to come in far below burning natural gas as baseload with these skyrocketing prices, which we really see no sign of coming down with, you know, more and more talk about needing to ship natural gas over to Europe to help them get off of Russian natural gas. Well, and, and yeah, let's connect the dots here. Uh, you know, it was just yesterday that the Prime Minister and the German Chancellor were talking about this, and and even though they've, they've made a commitment to hydrogen, and okay, let's see what we can do about that, that's that's not going to happen tomorrow. That's a long-term goal, we get that. But even you know, as they were breaking up the meeting, the, you know, the, the Chancellor did say, yeah, but we still need your natural gas. we got to get it from someplace. So, I mean, there's going to be pressure there, uh, to start, as you say, to export this right now. And, uh, yeah, and that, as you mentioned, that means the price is probably going to go up in one way, shape, or form. So, I mean, I'm, I'm concerned about the long-term viability of what the government's trying to propose here. No, you're going to see hydrogen used as a, as a fig leaf, um, as a Trojan horse to sneak in more natural gas by the natural gas industry. That's absolutely what's going on. Hydrogen is a very difficult energy carrier, not an energy source. You know, you have to make hydrogen. That takes a lot of energy. You know, Germany is shutting down three large nuclear plants this year for no reason. They have some of the best-run nuclear plants in the world. And they're talking about replacing that by building a massive offshore wind farm in Newfoundland. Um, electrolyzers, which convert, that, that would convert water into hydrogen, turning it into ammonia, shipping it across the Atlantic, turning it back into hydrogen and burning it on their grid to help back up their wind and solar. There's a far cheaper solution, and that's to keep running their nuclear plants in Germany. And the Canadian government should be championing nuclear energy and should be telling the Germans to come to their senses. I mean, they're facing the worst energy uh, crunch since the OPEC crisis, and they're shutting down their nuclear plants. We should not be aiding and abetting that with these hydrogen fantasies. 
Chris, why don't we? Why aren't we beating the drum about that? I mean, we were considered to be a, a world leader uh, with this technology. Uh, you know, there, there was a day when you know people were knocking on our doors and say, "How do you guys do this?" Uh, I, the Prime Minister didn't even mention it when he was having discussions about energy with the German Chancellor over the last three days. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really puzzling, Bill, because again, you know, we have a 96% made in Canada supply chain with our nuclear technology. It brings nothing but economic benefit to us. We produce about 14% of the world's uranium. And that's, you know, we talk about exporting hydrogen for climate. Our uranium offsets fully one third of Canada's total CO2 emissions every single year because it's used in carbon free nuclear plants domestically and internationally. So, you know, we really need a shift here. We need a visionary government that comes to its senses, that understands energy, and that champions this made-in-Canada solution that we have, not just for ourselves, but for the world. Pickering, so, I mean, Pickering itself, we should remind our listeners, Pickering plant alone uh, produces about 14% of Ontario's electricity right now. Uh, and, and they're suggesting that they're simply going to make that up with the, their investment in natural gas. But again, as you mentioned, they don't talk about the price here, and they don't talk about the impact this is going to have on consumers. Yeah, no, and, and as we're saying, natural gas prices are, are absolutely skyrocketing. You know, we're also facing, as you're saying, issues with supply chain. And there's no better time now to stimulate the Ontario economy than to invest further in nuclear. Again, we control that supply chain, that value chain. We have tens of thousands of skilled trades workers working in our refurbishments at Darlington and Bruce. And once those refurbishments are done in the late 2020s at Darling, Darlington, those folks can move hammer in hand to Pickering and maintain that station, um, you know, which has won, which has won awards for being, you know, having an exemplary operations. Things are getting better and better at Pickering in terms of how it's being run. Um, and again, we know this with Candus around the world, in Romania, in China. Um, right here in Canada, we've refurbished plants uh, in Point La Pro, uh, in New Brunswick. We've refurbished several units now at Bruce Power. We know how to do this. We're getting really good at it. And at Darlington, things are coming in you know, below budget and on time or even ahead of schedule in terms of refurbishment. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a no-brainer to do the same thing at Pickering. Um, you know, we can't afford to take a step backwards here. And natural gas and particularly hydrogen is not a solution. Absolutely. Well, we I'm, I'm glad we had time to talk about this today because I think we, as the public and we as consumers, uh, need to be aware of what the plan is. And uh, I don't want to be sitting here two or three years from now and say, gee, I told you so. But look at the problems we're facing. So uh, a little forward thinking, I think, would be beneficial here. Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer, the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, uh, with some legitimate concerns, I think, about Ontario's energy plan going forward. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to get into things like uh, supply chain issues and others uh, right now because, uh, well, prices continue to rise and, well, groceries and just about anything you want to buy these days. And uh, we thought that maybe, you know, okay, there's going to be a bit of a bump when, the, you know, we get back to business after the pandemic and after the shutdowns and everything. Uh, but it's not going away anytime soon. It's still some concern. Uh, Canadian businesses and shoppers alike are saying that this industry-wide supply chain issue continues to cause backlogs and frustration. Nisha Patel from CBC has this report. Anything that come that is coming in from overseas uh, is really taking a much longer time to get here. Um, some say that if it's not on the water right now, then it's going to be a 2023 product. Some supply chains are more tangled than others. The war in Ukraine has disrupted raw materials like sunflower oil. A semiconductor shortage continues to plague automakers. And so if they miss 
the ability to get their hands on a very specific component, it can shut down the entire assembly line. But some goods, which were tough to find at the beginning of the pandemic, are now more available, with some retailers overstocking. So they're going to want to offload that inventory. They're not going to want to hang on to those items for very long. And so you should see those items go on sale. Schwartz and Truber hopes to make the most of the season. We have three prime months that bring in majority of our annual income. So those months are very important to us. Um, so each sale does matter. Despite that extra buying, some products have already sold out. More lessons in a year where business has been anything but usual. Nisha Patel, CBC News, Toronto. So how are we going to handle this and just how much longer is this going to go on? I mean, the consumers, I think, are going to get a little bit frustrated uh, by what's been happening over the last little while and figure, okay, we'll cut some slack, but, you know, eventually things have got to even out. And it's not quite happening, I think, uh, at the success rate that we'd like to see it happen. So uh, we as consumers are, are going to have to change our minds, or are we? So uh, bring Marvin Ryder into the discussion. Marvin, of course, is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton, uh, and always a, a, a worthy uh, guest on the program because he's got some great insights into this. And and I can understand the frustration a lot of people are feeling these days because, uh, you know, we talked uh, about a year ago, I guess, you know, about things that just weren't on the shelves, and we saw big gaps uh, in grocery store shelves, uh, products not available in clothing stores. Uh, you know, we're waiting for it. And, and as you say, some component parts, uh, well, for automobiles especially. And uh, and that's that's getting very frustrating uh, for people in that industry uh, because let's face it that's a major purchase and you want to make sure that you've got the product there and I have noticed I mean just you know a couple of months ago when I went to get the, the snow tires taken off the car and, and put back in you know I said where where's all your product where are all the cars only one or two cars in the showroom and not a whole lot going out in the back lot and he says that we're just not getting them and now this that was that was June, April, May, June, I guess, and then we're into August now. But that's only one element of this right now, and we have to ask ourselves about these delays and and what's going on here. Uh, so let's bring Marvin Ryder into the discussion from uh, the Groot School of Business. Marvin, good morning. Good to have you with us again today. Glad to be with you, Bill. What, what's this going on here? We've talked about supply chain, and I think we all you know kind of accepted the fact that oh sure there's going to be some bumps here coming out of this because every production did slow down of course after you know during the pandemic uh a lot of us though thought we'd be back to some sense of normal right now and it's not quite happening what's going on right so so first let me just deal with your last comment there we're not back to normal yet but we are moving towards normal the problem with a supply chain is you need to get everything balanced it's not just one thing uh, that's the problem. So uh, a year ago, for instance, one of the big bottlenecks seemed to be our ports. And we'd have boats arrive, but we didn't have people to unload them, so the boats sat out there waiting and waiting and waiting. And the problem was that the, the port did not have enough people to unload the boats. Well, the good news is we seem to have enough people to unload the boats, but then the problem comes is I've got to take all those containers that have been unloaded and either put them on train tracks and send them wherever they have to go or put them on the back of a flatbed and have a truck drive them some places. And now the problem is that the train people, they let people go during COVID. They're trying to get people back. It takes nearly nine months to train people as to how to properly work on on these trains as they go so they're a little behind schedule on what they're doing the the truck drivers a number of those were lost now we're trying to get more people involved in that and we just we haven't got the system balanced 
we've got it working and goods are flowing through, but it's not balanced. And to give you an example of the problem, if, if I'm selling you something that's consumed at an equal rate year-round, let's say laundry detergent, well, you know, the supply chain is working there just fine. But if I have highly seasonal items, so imagine I'm Canadian Tire and I uh, ordered uh, a thousand barbecues that I wanted to have arrive in May for the start of the summer season, and well, they've arrived, but they've arrived in at the end of July, early August. Now, what do I do? Yes, people who ordered those barbecues and were waiting, I can deliver it to them. But there was a whole lot of people that didn't buy anything. Uh, and now, what do I do? The season is almost over. Do I try to keep them in inventory, fill up a warehouse with them, or do I mark them down? And so, we still haven't got a balance between the demand of consumers and the ability of these businesses to supply. But it's getting better. But I think it'll probably take until after Christmas before we're back to where we really need to be and have balance in the system. Everything arriving, as we like to say in business, just in time. Just in time mm. when somebody wants to buy it, and we haven't quite got back to that point. Are, are we manufacturing enough of those barbecues? I mean, is, 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 the, is the product there? I, mean, I, I can understand the transportation concerns, and I, I think that's, that's something that, as you mentioned, is going to take some time. But there, there, were, there were production shortfalls before, too. Is, is that working itself out? Well, I would say yes. So, if, if again, you can remember to a year ago, uh, one of the first signs of the supply chain problems happened in the lumber industry. And people yeah. who wanted to build a deck last summer or build a fence last summer, I couldn't get two-by-fours, I couldn't get two-by-sixes, or if I did, I had to pay a premium for them. Why? Because the, the yards weren't producing the product, and therefore you were paying a premium for it. Production side seems to have been sorted out pretty well. Uh, that we're, we're making what we need to. Even the car industry is getting some of those chips. Their backlog is going down. So the production side seems to be working, but now it's very much on the distribution side. Can we get a, a chain? And, and as a great example, Bill, Canada's busiest port is Vancouver. That's because we import a lot of stuff from Asia. Well, getting it to Vancouver now is working just fine. <laughs> the problem is getting it from Vancouver to the rest of the country. And, and that's not an easy task, getting something from Vancouver to Ontario, you need a combination of trucks and trains, and, and these things just aren't quite back to where they were. So we're getting there. We're improving. Every day that goes by, it's getting better. But if you're a business person uh, and you have these problems, what are you going to do? So, I, again, I hate to say this out loud, inflation has finally turned, started to go in the right direction. We went from 8.1% to 7.5%. I think when we get the August numbers, we might even have ducked below 7%. But something that's still driving inflation are these inefficiencies in the supply chain and businesses that have had to pay more for certain things. They're going to pass those costs on to you and I as the consumer. So until we can get the supply chain worked out, we're still not going to get all the benefit we want to in the reduced uh, inflation numbers. You mentioned, uh, as, as you were explaining in past discussions with us, that you know the components. Obviously, this is where you make the the product or grow it, whatever it is the, the product may be. Here's the market uh, and getting it from point A to point B. But there's a oftentimes a middle point there, and that's the warehouse. Uh, you know where these things are going to get stored, uh, the barbecues, right. whatever the case might be. Uh, and, and they were not at full capacity a year or so ago. Is uh, if the production's up, I would assume that that element of it is looking after itself, the warehousing. 
Well, sort of. So, so yes, uh, warehouses are much fuller, thank you very much. But the problem is some of the things that they're storing missed this year's selling season. So people are saying, well, let's store them for next year's selling season. That's great, except now I don't have space for the other seasonal merchandise that say I wanted to sell over the Christmas season or the spring season or the Thanksgiving season. And so there's still inefficiencies even in warehousing. It's not because they're empty, but now it's because they're so full. So as a result, then the consumer is going to go looking for something, you know, whether it's a you know an umbrella for their their patio or whatever the case might be, right. and it's just not going to be there. Uh, and and I guess the concern here is that yeah, but as to your point, uh, you know, the guy at Canadian Tire is going to say yeah, but it'll be here in January. Well, I'm not going to sit out on the patio in January. I don't need one then. Right. So you have a choice. You can order it now, have it on back order, and whenever it arrives, it'll be delivered to you. And certainly. People moving into new homes who need a new refrigerator and a new stove and what have you, they are ordering appliances and, and waiting for them to arrive. Before, sometimes it was six months. Now they seem to be arriving in two months, not back where we want. We want it to be able to deliver later this afternoon if we could. But for something else, you might say, well, if it's the, if it's the umbrella, I'm not going to order that. It'll be last season's. You know, I might want something different. I'll wait until next year. So for businesses like a Canadian gets late, what do they do? They could store them until next year and sell them to you then, or they could try to move them now, just like we do with leftover Christmas merchandise, by marking them down. Of course, that then hurts the profitability of the store. So there, there are lots of issues in retail these days of how to deal with these supply chain problems, these hiccups going on through the system, because it's not back to balance. And, and for a consumer, this becomes... Um, you know, you get a little whiplash because one day you see a tremendous deal. My gosh, you know, I, I don't really need a new umbrella now, but my, look at how they've marked them down. I, I guess I'd better one put it in my own basement until next year. And, and you think, wow, that's crazy. Two months ago I couldn't buy one at all, and now they're half price. But this is the challenge retailers have. When inventory arrives late, do they try to store it for the future, or do they move it now while they can, even though it means taking a bit of a loss on it? How are the the retailers handling this this kind of pressure? Because as you say, if it's you know, to use your example about your laundry detergent, yeah, they're always going to sell that. Okay, so people are always going to do that. But they do they do rely on on some seasonal items, don't they, to for their profitability? You know, patio sets, for instance, in the summertime, and and you know, Christmas time obviously is a big selling time for an awful lot of people in the retail as well. Uh, if they don't have the product, they're not going to make that much money, and that's got to be problematic. Right. So uh, this is not a happy time to be a retailer in Canada or anywhere for that matter. Supply chain problem. They're still having problems getting employees. Uh, I've, I've seen people note, for instance, that uh, certain grocery stores that used to be open 24 hours or at least were open to midnight are only open until 10 o'clock. And part of that's because they haven't got the employees to run those extended hours to give that greater convenience. So uh, especially if you're not a chain retailer but an individual retailer, a small business person in Hamilton or another city, London, these, these issues, both on the employment side and on the product side, it gives you lots and lots of headaches. It's not a happy time to be them. And you ask how they're doing with it. They're just coping as they can. You take it day by day by day. 
uh, as you probably know, I was in California for uh, a week and a half, and uh, mm-hmm. there was a store that I visited down there. Somebody wanted me to buy something for them, and they said, well, we ordered product, and it was supposedly shipped in July. It's got to be here any day. So I stopped by twice more while I was in California, and the product hadn't arrived, and they said, we just throw up our hands. We don't know. I, I can't promise you because I'll be wrong. Um, and I felt badly for the person, but this was the frustration they were having. And their answer to me was, we hope by next year this will be a lot smoother. And that's kind of where we're going. Uh, bouncing back from COVID has caused all kinds of problems that we hadn't imagined, most of it because we bounced back much, much faster than anyone thought and much fuller than anyone thought. We thought we'd come back, but in a slow way, we came back in a big way almost immediately. Whether it's airlines trying to get you through customs or security, or whether it's delivering products, we're still challenged to make this happen. Yet some people seem to be doing very well, thank you very much. And well, the one that comes to mind for me is Amazon. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. you can still order something online, and two days later, it's there at your front door. Is, is that because they've stockpiled and they do have that warehouse availability? Yeah, so the bigger you are, the less this seems to affect you. You know, if you're, uh, you used Amazon, but if you're a Walmart, even if you are a yeah. Canadian tire, you've got big warehousing, you order large quantities, you actually expect multiple shipments over the course of a season, you don't just rely on one shipment to make it happen. And on balance, these people have fewer stockouts, they have more inventory on hand, and they're better able to fill order. On balance. Now, I appreciate your comment about Amazon, but again, I've spoken to some people who had a different experience. They ordered something from Amazon, and they were told they had to wait two weeks. What do you mean? I'm used to getting it the next day or the day after the next day. What do you mean? Uh, and they say, oh, you know, it's out of my control. So they're better at it. They're, fearing, uh, they're experiencing fewer of these problems, but even they can't can't snap their fingers and make it all work. But again, if I'm a, a business manufacturing things, who do I want to tick off? A small entrepreneur in Hamilton or a big guy like Amazon? Well, I'm going to work harder to please Amazon than the little guy. Absolutely. Marvin, as always, thanks for this. Really appreciate the time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the Dugger School of Business at McPasty University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of uh, fear, of course, uh, over the uh, the firing of Lisa Laflamme uh, by Bell Media slash CTV, of course, uh, some days ago now. A lot of backlash, a lot of stories, a lot of rumors, a lot of innuendo. Uh, and some of the stuff is, I guess, things that we have come to expect. I mean, I, I think I mentioned on the program the day after we heard this that uh, I know it's going to happen eventually. They're going to start these s- stories and these rumors from unnamed sources that she was difficult to work with and on and on and on it goes. I mean, she's an incredibly talented woman. Uh, and there are some people in, in the executive world that just don't like strong women. I mean, we know that to be the case. I don't know if that was a factor or not. I suspect it is. But one of the other stories, of course, is uh, the, the apparently the guy who ultimately made the decision uh, to let her go didn't like the fact that she let her hair go gray. Uh, you know, she colored it, obviously, during the pandemic. Her, as she s- explained, her colorist was unavailable. As a lot of us ended up with shaggy hair, of course, over the course of the pandemic and the lockdowns. And, uh, and so she went gray. And I think she looked fabulous, as a matter of fact. Uh, but apparently this guy didn't, and that was, if not the factor, a contributing factor in uh, the decision to let Lisa LaFlamme go. Well, the uh, Dove company, Dove Canada, has decided to hop on the bandwagon, I guess in a, kind of a backhanded way, take a shot at, at Bell Media, but at the same time kind of encourage uh, women especially uh, to be proud of going gray uh, with the hashtag, uh, hashtag keep the gray. Uh, and uh, 
a lot of folks are looking at this. I'm, I'm hearing mixed reaction from this. Uh, some people think this is kind of a novel idea. Some think it's a, it's a show of solidarity. Uh, some think it's just a, a publicity stunt by Dove. Uh, let's uh, bring uh, Joanne McNeeshan to the conversation. She is a, an associate professor of marketing at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, Joanne, pleasure to have you back in the program. How are you doing today? Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Great. Good to have you with us. And I was, as soon as I saw the story, I was looking forward to our conversation here, but getting your perspective on this. Uh, b- before I get into Dove, though, I, let's let's step back a little bit because you and I haven't talked for a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. How do you feel about the Lisa Laflamme situation? I mean, the, the I think it shocked an awful lot of us when she put the video out there on YouTube that, that said she'd been ba- essentially canned. Uh, but we're starting to hear all these stories that it had a lot more to do with how she looked. Uh, there were there's some accusations about ageism, uh, sexism, uh, and on and on it goes. What 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 are you seeing, and what are you reading into this? So so I'm I'm with you. We we're actually seeing a lot of conflicting views of her behavior, and it's interesting that every time a high profile person, man or woman, now leaves a position, there's this the unnamed sources, exactly as you put it, rush in to say negative things. But one thing I haven't seen reported on is the brilliance of her campaign. By the way, we see someone at work, a really skilled journalist at work, because when you when you look at the stories, there's a period of time between she was when she was told and when all the announcements came out. And Mm -hmm. because it said we only have our hearing in August that, in fact, she was told on June 29th and she was told, no, you can't announce that right away. And all of a sudden we see this lovely, or this quite well-crafted video that puts her in the hero seat. And so once again, I think it reinforces what a great journalist she is. Um, and then we hear these funny, weird rumors about it, the fact that it was her gray hair. I didn't even realize that Anchor People's appearance was part of a sort of contractual agreement, which is the implication of this. So I think there's a whole other discussion of that, really, that one's appearance is part of a contractual agreement. Well, we know from Black Lives Matter kind of discourse that said, absolutely, people have been told to fix their appearance when we think of religious paraphernalia. So there's so much to unpack in this story that suggests I thought we'd come a long way. It sounds like we haven't come any way at all, and particularly when it comes to people in the public eye. That never occurred to me that she could be, her appearance was a a point of discussion. And yet I, I should know better. I really should know better. Yeah, I, I had a similar situation, not like Lisa Laflamme, certainly. Uh, but I, when I was doing a TV show at, at CHCH TV back, uh, gosh, it's almost, almost 20 years ago, I guess. Anyway, long story short, I was it was a talk show like this, but I was on TV camera, obviously. Uh, and they brought in some consultant, you know, to, yeah, the, which this industry does every now and then, some guy from Texas or Los Angeles or something. And, yeah. and they sit there and listen or watch for a day or two, and then they go back to management and, and they meet and say, and they, the, the guy basically told me, I had a beard at the time. He said, you can't have a beard on tv and i said why not he said well you just it just isn't done i said well i'm doing it uh, of course can. uh and, and to their credit management backed me up and said that's that's who he is that's what he does uh we're yeah. not worried about that but he says well i'm just telling you so they do have a, a standard now it may not be you know something they write down but you know when eyes are on you like this and and i guess the story we've heard and you know nobody's going to confirm or deny any of the stuff at this point is that this they didn't like the fact that she went gray uh, you know the in other words the, the the i guess the inferred message i guess in this situation joanne was lisa you have to keep coloring your hair even if you don't want to 
Right. And, and, and if we, and, and, and that's where a little bit of hypocrisy comes in. If we think of a number of anchors who have since retired, all of them went gray on air and there is no discussion. And for sure, and that's Dove's point in their quite brilliant campaign. Uh, and, and I understand there's criticism. So now any corporation uh, dealing with these issues is, has to be comfortable with the fact that they will be criticized. But in this particular case, it is the hypocrisy of, a woman going gray versus uh, a man. And and I think all of us noticed at the time in a way that we would not notice uh, for uh, a man or a person that identifies as male going gray on air. And again, so it really suggests we have so much more work to do in this area in terms of how our appearances should be, what's acceptable. Because um, I think a lot of commentators have said, like, she didn't just randomly go gray. I mean, it looked beautiful. So I have a feeling there yeah. there are colors that you can put on your hair to make it a beautiful gray color. So th there's no question she looked great. Uh, but it's also suggests something about our view of older people. And it's interesting, the baby boomers, actually, the first baby boomer turned uh, 50 in uh, the 1990s, which I had kind of forgotten about. And the academic literature, uh, not to bore your readers, but they literally started talking about this issue as baby boomers always do. It's like, oh my gosh, we're getting old. We better start investigating the implication. So the discussion of ageism and perceptions of age has been talked about for the last uh, you know, 15, 17 years. Um, so this is just a latest example that in addition to the way that women uh, or people people that identify as women uh, are supposed to look, we have this idea that if you get older, you're no longer able to make a contribution. And, and again, we need to really stop this kind of attitude because we waste so many people. In other words, if we think of a society as having some efficiency, when we take experienced and skilled people and we force them into retirement, as she said, that would happen. Um, now, in this case, the company is saying her contract was not renewed. So remember, this is not this is em employment that she continues to have. That happens, especially to media people, often that their contracts are not reviewed for a variety of reasons. But here's was an example. Again, her ratings were great, well respected. So there were there didn't appear to be a business reason for not continuing this contract. Again, there's so many different issues, and I hope people continue to unpack this one. Um, but it is this example of ageism where if you look older, then you must not have any value experience. You may have experience, but it's not valued. And finally, my big overlay on this is this fetish for we got to be changing everything all the time is becoming self-destructive as a society we're we're undoing things we no longer can produce things in a in a, in a, in a we're not making change for good reasons we're just making change to make change can i just say about lisa laflam though again let's come back to this idea of, of a yeah. really clever journalist and so th there's lots of commentary about how she'll land something else i think she will choose to pursue something else but she probably in the background has an idea of what she'd like to continue to do because imagine losing her experience from the industry i i think that would be a real shame no and for those that attract us i remember Lisa when she was just a, a local news anchor in kitchener mm -hmm. at ckco yeah. tv there and she worked her way up the ladder and uh, to toronto and of course and she's an incredible reporter too by the way not just a an anchor in situations like this but is are we talking about a double standard here 
you know, if ageism was a, a concern, and that's one of the other stories that is floating around, Joanne, um, you juxtapose that with, for instance, Peter Mansbridge. I mean, you know, we watched yeah. Peter Mansbridge. We watched him lose his hair, not just go gray. Uh, <laughs> nobody nobody mentioned anything about that. You know, it's okay for a guy to, to age, but not women. Uh, it, it just, that, how shallow is that? Well, it, uh, it, it is shallow. And, and, and by the way, any ageism is always around our own fears of aging um, and, and your inability to see the value you can have when you're older. Um, but there does seem to be a sense that in a man, you're absolutely right, bald. And we can think of actors that continue to work long after they're bald. Uh, we can think of uh, a journalist and we can think of most uh, CEOs of major corporations, all of which um, are uh, between 45 and 75, let's just say on average, and all of them have gray hair unless they've made a choice not to, but very few have to. That absolutely it's a look that in a man uh, suggests power, experience, uh, and a certain, and, and that they're owed a certain deference. So in that piece, for sure, we see this, this complete contrast between uh, the way that Lisa LaFemme was treated. And again, Remember, she took the action to, because um, uh, some of the commentary has been around, well, everybody else got nice thank yous and and uh, retrospectives. She actually chose uh, to get ahead of that announcement that, in fact, Bell says that they were planning to do a retrospective and a, a thank you on air. She chose not to have that. But again, I think that's a clever political strategy. Would her goodbye have had the same gravitas? Would it have generated the same kind of discussion? And and back to her 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 way that she wanted to leave, she's raised a discussion of these issues again. And it does seem like we have to keep discussing them. And I hope people are not getting bored by any of these big societal issues. It's really important that we they're iterative in their solution and we have to keep working them and working them and working them but i i agree with you bill there there does appear to be a double standard here in the way that a, a, a an older man is perceived there's longevity there however i will also say if they're in senior roles if they're not in senior roles i think ageism is is actually pretty equal across men and women uh, below the C-suite or the, the, the senior management uh, roles that you'll find as many men complaining about the fact, gee, when I turn 50, 55, I'm either let go from my company or I have, and if I've been let go, I have a much more difficult time getting another job. Um, I have friends that work in HR and, and, and they unequivocally tell people, uh, if you're job hunting, make sure your resume doesn't read older than about 45 to 49. So get rid of older experience, get your age, get dates off your resume. So imagine that people are being told, don't look older, even in your experience. Beyond 20 years, your experience doesn't count for anything. So there's another double standard of if you make it to senior management ranks, that gray hair, if you're a man who, a person who identifies as male, that's going to help you. If you're female, it's not really going to help you. Um, and then there's everybody else. So we have this terrible divides. 
um, between genders, be between uh, people at different levels in the organization, and between different job types as well. So, so how, how do we get over that, though? I mean, the, you know, the, the reality, Joanne, is we're hanging around longer. I mean, you know... Yes. <laughs> When the pension plan started back in the 1960s, 64, I think it was in Canada, uh, yep. the average age for, for males was about 68. That's why they said 65. He's going to live for about yep. three more years, probably going to die. Well, but we're living a lot longer. There's no mandatory yep. retirement age anymore. So a lot of us want to work a lot longer past that you know supposed retirement age. So, I mean, we have to get used to it. But And, and again, as you say, there seems to be that double standard. I, I saw Tom Hanks on uh, one of the late shows. Mm -hmm. I forget which one, about a week or so ago. And I remember, God, I remember... You know, I you see sleepless in Seattle, Tom Hanks, and you compare oh. Tom Hanks out. He's he's gone great, he's, and he's distinguished, and he's a great actor. Uh, yes. Yet we hear from how many times have you heard from from women in that profession uh, in acting that said, "Look, you know, when you get on the north side of fifty, there's just like that many roles anymore, unless you're you're playing somebody's mom, and that's about it." Uh, and and they're complaining about that. So that goes to screenwriting. It goes to everything else. We do have a double standard between males and females. Yes, no, no I, I completely agree with you that 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 is that there's um, and, and again we can go to biological imperatives doesn't matter. So your question was how do we get over this? We do it iteratively. So we have to each time it happens we need to look at ourselves and look at other people. We need to challenge people to have these discussions. We need to get involved uh, with groups, lobby groups. We need to work on the legislation, and we also have a fundamental tension. Um, so I'm confused about the workforce so that, uh, for example, in the tech industry, unless you're about 15, uh, 20 is practically too old in the tech industry. <laughs> but Rogers, and this is, seems far afield, but Rogers outage taught us something quite fundamental about the structure of our technology, which is built on 1970s technology. If you let all those baby boomers go to the workplace, there are people that don't even know how to write the code for the underlying technology. And so this idea that older people don't have things to teach us. Currently, we're going through periods of inflation and interest rates that unless you're over 60, you've never seen this. So you don't know how to operate. Go get those accountants who are over 60s and those marketers over 60. They can tell you the key lessons. There's some simple principles that you need to apply now. So we have double standards, but it's always iterative and it's always reminding ourselves that these issues don't go away. And age is one of those funny things. It will come to all of us. And uh, I think that's the most fundamental thing that comes out of this one. This one is always a surprise because all of us will have this experience. It's just that when we're younger, we 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 baby boomers coined the phrase don't trust anyone over 30 and in a way it's ironic that they're the generation that are that started raising these issues to say this is a, a fundamental problem but it happened to people uh for many many years um so unfortunately big issues don't get solved in the first pass it's iterative we've got to change things lifting off the requirement to retire was a fundamental shift by government and in fact they're encouraging people the change in RSPs, the encouragement in not taking your pensions right away. These are ways to support keeping people working longer. And I always say contributing taxes, what's wrong with that? But then we need interventions at the corp in, within corporations to talk to how do you work well together, older and younger workers. And, and, and uh, I, I wrote a paper where we, that, that often older workers and younger workers agree on one fundamental uh, issue around working together. 
If both groups have passion for what they do, they both want to work together. Both of them deeply resent people who are dialing it in. And that's older and younger workers. So that's the fascinating piece here that when it comes to individuals, we just need to help support them in what should your attitude look like? How do you work well with other generations? But it, it's going to take, I always think, these issues take forever until suddenly the change is done. But and yeah, but the, I, the dialogue's yeah. happening, though, and that's the, I guess that's yeah. the big takeaway there. And, and that's there. really And important. I've seen okay. the criticism, and I know you have too, and, uh, you know, both Dove, you know, piggybacking on there and trying to take advantage of it. They're keeping the conversation going, and that's good. Yeah. I, I, I saw the post, and I'm sure you did too. Uh, somebody responded and, and showed a picture actually on their post of, of the board of directors for Unilever. That's the company that owns Dove, and they're all white yeah. men. Uh, on the board so you know it's this is kind of like do as we say not as we do but uh well right. that's a conversation i guess for another day we got to run we're just about out of time it's always great to have you on the show and, and to get your perspective on that thanks so much today joanne hey thanks bill really appreciate it talk soon take care joanne mcneish of course i'm professor of marketing at uh, toronto's metropolitan university the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.